This morning, we now enter Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 3 is a list of regulations for the Christian life. It's guiding the believers closer to Christ. And so each verse of the chapter guides followers of Christ in their holiness. Included in that were 3.18 and through 4.1, which we just finished last week, which outlines what I called foundations for a high-functioning society. This morning, though, we now transition into chapter 4, and it is here where Paul really begins his final exhortations to the Colossians. He will send them final greetings beginning in verse 7, but he spends the next few verses just giving them a couple of things to think about. These next few verses of chapter 4, I would say, identify a believer's testimony. And most would say specifically, 2 through 6 identify a testimony of speech, a testimony of how we use our mouths for the glory of the Lord. And so I want to invite you to to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 4. And I want to bring to you a message that I I have titled, The Believer's Testimony of Prayer. So as always, please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 4, and I'm only going to read the the few verses here beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may speak it clear, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You may be seated. Paul Newby, Supreme Court Justice for the state of North Carolina, suggests, to stand before God, you must first kneel before God. There was a time when approaching God was unthinkable except within just a few exceptions, to approach God required a barrier, something that stood between man and God to shield people from the effects of God's holiness and God's gloriousness. It was not just a physical obstruction also that acted as a guard, but we also know that standing between God and man and God and humans was another human, a priest, that priest acting as mediator was set apart by God, arbitrating the relationship between God and men. This arrangement made direct access to God difficult. It was only upon the death of the Christ, death of Christ on the cross, when that veil, that physical obstruction was torn and men were given access to God. Matthew describes this event in what we already read this morning, but I want to read it again in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. He says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at, ran, at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him and to drink. Verse 49. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This moment in scripture is a defining moment in Christian history, because what happened here transformed the relationship between us and God. The author of Hebrews goes on to describe that new relationship, again with words that we read this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, no longer were there any physical barriers restricting access to God. No longer did man's interaction with God need to be moderated by another fallen, fallible human being. The follower of Christ was now set free, set free to see God, set free to worship God, and set free to pray to God by Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. The Lord's anger was now appeased, and he made himself available to people for personal, genuine relationship. But where there is a genuine relationship, there must be genuine communication. There must be a mutual conversation, an exchange of thoughts and ideas and emotions and wants. The Lord has done his part, communicating to us first by giving us his word and second by giving us his spirit. But on our side of the conversation, the Lord has gifted the Christian the discipline of prayer by making himself available to hear our prayers. The Lord has indeed given us something very special. He's given us a deeper relationship with himself. The Christian life without prayer is a Christian life without Christ. The frightening truth of this is that the absence of prayer indicates an absence of protection. Ephesians 6.18 indicates that prayer is a weapon, a weapon of spiritual warfare. It gives believers access to the power and protection and presence of God. And so without prayer, the Christian is left defenseless in this strategic spiritual battle. It would seem that by Paul's inclusion of this assertion in, in his writing to the Colossians, that they must not have been praying. In the midst of this spiritual battle, they seem to be leaving themselves exposed to potential harm by not coming to the Lord in prayer. In fact, it would seem that Epaphras was more concerned about the state of their spiritual life than they were. Because in verse 12, he is described as struggling in prayer on their behalf. 
Of all people, the Colossians should understand the severity and intensity of spiritual warfare. They, in this moment when Paul's writing, are entrenched in the middle of it, in which their church is fighting for its future, being misled by false teachers, as we've long talked about as we've gone through this book. Who wins this spiritual battle will determine the direction of their church. And their greatest weapon against the false teachers is prayer. See, before bringing the word of God to battle, they want to bring God to the battle through prayer. But their absence of prayer seems to cause or should cause great concern. And so in Paul's admonition, we learn three characteristics of a believer's testimony of prayer. Three characteristics that are essential to the prayer life of the one who is engaged in this spiritual battle. And so I want you to note first that the follower of Christ prays devotedly. A follower of Christ prays devotedly. Some of your versions may say steadfastly, but they both indicate a commitment to prayer. I would tell you that the nature of the spiritual battle determines the nature of our prayer. Specifically, that the nature of the spiritual battle determines the devotion of our prayer. It is noted by some that Martin Luther once said something to the effect of, I have so much to do today that I must spend three hours in prayer. It's fitting that we remember Luther today because tomorrow will mark 505 years since he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of that castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. I'm uncertain fully about the source of that quote, but I am not uncertain about the testimony of Luther. It is well documented that indeed he spent several hours a day in prayer. What this quote does convey is that Luther did not organize his life or his daily agenda by the labor required for his personal work, but by the labor required for his personal prayer. Martin Luther didn't lay out his schedule and and say, I have two hours of study and, and then I've got this counseling appointment, and then I need 60 minutes of writing. And so I'll, I'll try to fit prayer in between task two and task three. Now what we see is that Luther allowed the intensity of their work to determine the intensity of his prayer. So that a busier day did not mean he prayed less, but that he prayed more. <clears throat> the greater his responsibility, the greater he prayed In the same way that Luther established a priority of prayer, I would say all of us should establish a priority of prayer. More than most, Luther understood that he was engaged in a spiritual battle. He was engaged in a crusade that would threaten his own life to the point that his very own supporters would kidnap him and whisk him away to the Wartburg Castle and hide him there under a false name. This was a spiritual battle that for him could have cost him his physical life. This is a case in which the state of the spiritual battle should determine the state of the prayer life. To declare ourselves followers of Christ is to declare that we will follow Christ wherever he leads. He is our commander, and currently he is leading us into battle. But also as our commander, he has also first equipped us with the one weapon we need, both for offense and defense. 
If the state of the spiritual battle determines the state of our prayer, then I want you to note several characteristics about the spiritual battle that call upon us to be devoted to prayer. First, the spiritual battle is strenuous. To the Corinthians, Paul calls it a war. And to the Ephesians, he classifies it as a struggle. To the point that in Ephesians, he summons them to put on armor. The war waged over souls is arduous and difficult. Think about how much people are willing to fight with one another over things that are temporal and inconsequential. People will lose much in a quarrel to preserve their opinions and their preferences and perpetuate their agenda. How much more, then, should we expect that the spiritual forces would engage in a battle over the soul, over something that is far more important and far more eternal? How difficult should we expect this battle to be? Well, if you look at chapter 3 of Colossians, you'll see the call of the Christian life. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, and the list goes on. Verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 18, wives submit to your husbands. Verse 19, husbands love your wives. Look at all those things in chapter 3. All those calls on the spiritual life, and that tells us how many things can lead us astray. All the issues of the heart that can hinder our relationship with God and interfere with our labors for him. And you can be assured that that's exactly what Satan would attend. The call for the Colossians and, and for all believers is to devote themselves to prayer. And it flows directly from everything that's just been taught in chapter 3. There's a reason Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We see the commitment to prayer established in Acts 6.4. And it's there when the disciples are being overwhelmed by how their flock has grown and how their flock needs help physically. And so it's at that point that they chose among them seven men who would serve tables. Why did they do that? Well, it tells us in 6.4 they did that so that the disciples could continue on in a ministry of prayer. To live out our call to holiness in a world of sinfulness, we must be devoted to prayer. Consider also that the spiritual battle is sustained, meaning it's ongoing and it's continuous. Until that decisive moment when Christ returns in the future, once and for all, when he conquers his adversaries once for all, this spiritual battle is unceasing. It is unending. Because spiritual warfare never ceases, our prayer never ceases. As it says in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 
That is, that believers are to give constant attention to the discipline of prayer. It should be both habitual and persistent. As often as Satan is dispatching his servants to work on his behalf, we should be dispatching the Lord through prayer to work on our behalf. Every time we pray, we prove that indeed we take the Lord at his word when he offers his ongoing grace, his ongoing protection, and his ongoing peace. Therefore, while the devil wages war against God by attacking us, we wage war in a sustained manner against him by continuing to submit to God in prayer. Finally, remember that the spiritual battle is successful. Despite the fierceness of the battle, Christ emerges victorious. John writes in Revelation 21, 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We devote ourselves to prayer because we know that the Lord has already been successful in the battle. And so prayer becomes an expression of our confidence in him, in our trust, our faith in him. When we are most discouraged, most downtrodden, and most dissatisfied, we remain faithful in prayer because the Lord remains faithful to his promises. Despite how difficult this battle is, we we continue in prayer because the Lord overcomes those difficulties. That is, the Lord is successful in these spiritual battles. There's no doubt that Satan understands the effectiveness of prayer. Specifically, he understands its effectiveness in the strategic plan of God. And so we can have no doubt that Satan's going to try to interfere with our prayers. He's attempted that with the Colossians. He's using false teachers. And using those false teachers, Satan attempts to undermine their prayer life by establishing this higher knowledge that we read about in chapter 2, suggesting to them that they don't need prayer at all. They only need this new teaching. But this word devote or be steadfast, it's used 10 times in the New Testament. And it's always used to mean as be strong. In this case, be strong in prayer. That is, this is a call to devote oneself to prayer. To be what I would say is courageously persistent in prayer. I'm reminded of the story of three women who had been taken captive for their faith in Christ. And as they were waiting in line to be executed, they began to kneel together and pray. The guards threatened them to stop, but the women refused to stop. Even when the guards began to beat them to the ground, quite literally, each would simply right herself and continue to pray. This went on and on until they were finally put to death. This is what it means to be strong in prayer or courageously persistent in prayer. And so the follower of Christ prays devotedly because the nature of the spiritual battle determines the nature of our prayer. 
May we be unwilling to give up prayer. I want you to note second, the follower of Christ prays watchfully. The follower of Christ prays watchfully. The nature of Satan determines the nature of our prayer. The existence of a spiritual battle, as we just talked about, implies that there is an existence of a spiritual enemy. If there's a battle to be fought, it means we're fighting against somebody or something. The Apostle Peter writes, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That truth demands a response. The reality that Satan prowls around seeking someone to devour necessitates an attitude of watchfulness. That's how Peter began that verse. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion. Someone once said, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who, so I can't give them the credit, but they had said, someone once said that Satan is given credit for more power than he really has, but considered far less evil than he really is. If we fail to grasp the nature of Satan, we fail to grasp our need for prayer. With the name of Satan, he is already identified as antagonistic to Christ and to Christ followers. That is, after all, what the name Satan means, adversary. His life's ambition is to undermine the gospel, to undermine the gospel of Christ, and thus to also undo the work of Christ. Acts 5.3 indicates that he does this by leading people astray, by implanting sinful purposes into their hearts. Satan embodies evil, and this personification of evil is prowling around, which makes watchful prayer necessary. As Todd still reminds us, watchful prayer enables disciples to see both what God is doing and discern what sinister forces might be seeking to undo. And so, like three natures of the spiritual battle, I want us to look at three natures of Satan. First, he's identified as a devil. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This title, devil, means slanderer indicating that his agenda to subvert Christ's agenda is to be done by defaming and disparaging both Christ and Christ's followers. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul warns them of Satan's work, saying that Satan is there to promote falsehood. And so we see that he is the devil. But notice also that he is the deceiver. His title as a devil is supported by his work as the deceiver. Is that not the effect of one who promotes falsehood? The concept of slandering is established by this distortion of truth. And so he's going to be deceitful. Revelation 23, 20, verse 3, lays out part of the purpose of Satan's defeat, saying, and threw him into the pit and shut it, and sealed it over him, that is Satan, so that Satan might not deceive the nations any longer. 
until the thousand years were ended. Notice that in that text, it was the work of his as deceiver that earned him eternal condemnation. Not only is he the deceiver, he is the destroyer. Revelation 9.11 says they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Abaddon and Apollyon indicate they mean destroyer. That is the testimony of Satan, to cause destruction wherever he is present. He destroys relationships, he destroys households, he even destroys churches, and we see that he destroys societies. He is a devil who destroys through deception. Satan is dangerous. And to underestimate his depravity is to underestimate our need for prayer. Remember this adversary who who labors so intensely to tempt each one of us to turn away from God. He's the same adversary that tried to tempt Jesus to turn away from God. The call to watchful prayer is a reminder of the Christian's need to be vigilant and on guard. The call here to to be awake, to be watchful, is drawn from that very image of guard duty, in which a guard must remain always awake, always alert, for fear that somebody plundering and thieves may, may come in at any moment and make way with all that is valuable. It is spoken of in Nehemiah 7.3. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. In the same way, the Christian remains vigilant. But we do so in prayer so that the adversary does not take off with what is most valuable to us, things like our faith and our eternal rewards, our reputation or our holiness. Paul writes to the Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints. This is a battle that requires we battle in watchful prayer. No doubt you remember the stories of the disciples when they were left to remain watchful while Christ went off to pray. Turn with me to one of those descriptions in Mark, Mark chapter 14. The other is in in Matthew 26, but I want to look at Mark chapter 14. So please take your Bibles and turn there with me. In Mark chapter 14... The passage that I want to look at really begins at verse 32. It's at this point that Jesus and his disciples arrive in Gethsemane. 
And then it says Christ took Peter, James, and John, as he often did, with him. And after becoming distressed, he says this in verse 34, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Three times Christ asked them to remain there, to remain alert. And three times he finds them doing exactly the opposite. They were anything but alert. They were asleep. Christ's incredulousness kind of comes across in verse 41. Look at what it says. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Why is it so crucial that they remain awake? We're told in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watchful prayer is a dangerous weapon against a dangerous enemy. I was watching the WSU game the other night, and a commercial kept coming on. And I pay little attention to commercials, so I couldn't tell you what they were even advertising. But it was this wolf who was mean and nasty. And he's on the verge of attacking this woman. And then the woman pulls out a squeaky toy. (laughs) At the sight and sound of that toy, the wolf goes soft. He becomes complacent and docile. And thus the danger has been averted. That's foolish. You don't negotiate with danger. You flee from it. But I think sometimes that is how we act with Satan and his evil practices that he propagates in the world. Sometimes people try to negotiate with him. And so they'll give specific parameters and limitations. But evil will always push the threshold of those parameters. Satan, being deceitful, has no regard for physical parameters in a spiritual battle. You don't manage evil. You pray against it. Believers must wield their weapon of watchful prayer as often as Satan is wielding his weapon of wicked practices. As much as Satan is devoted to the destruction of Christ followers, Christ followers must be devoted to the destruction of Satan by watchful prayer. And so the nature of Satan determines the nature of our prayer, that we pray watchfully. I want you to note finally that a follower of Christ prays thankfully. A follower of Christ prays thankfully. The nature of God also determines the nature of our prayer. It is the evil nature of Satan that compels the Christian to pray watchfully. But now it is the holy nature of God that compels the Christian to pray thankfully. We've just discussed that every believer is involved in a spiritual battle. That battle is both serious and severe. And so it necessitates prayer that is serious and severe. Because we understand that we have this spiritual enemy, the Satan, and we understand that he is evil, not only up to no good, but he's going to do all that he can to make people fall into temptation and entrapment of sin. We also understand then the need to put forth our full efforts and labors into prayer. 
And so at the same time, as, as frightening as that aspect of the spiritual battle is, we can also be encouraged that on the other side of that same battle stands none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Satan is our enemy, we pray watchfully. But because Christ is our ally, we pray thankfully. The nature of God brings about a prayer of thankfulness, appreciating who he is and what he does. And so I want you to consider three aspects that motivate thankful prayer. Three aspects of God's nature. First, God is glorious. I think I said gracious there, but... I want to look that God is glorious because his glory sets the standard for all things. The author of Hebrews declares in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. That is, when one looks upon Christ, then they've seen God. And so when Hebrews 1.3 says, Christ is a radiance of God's glory, we get a picture of that magnificent glory that encompasses the Lord. Even through this difficulty of spiritual battle, it is the glory of the Lord that still shines through. And it is the effect of that glory that we await at the end of the spiritual battle. Revelation 21 speaks of this new heaven and this new earth. And verse 10 says that John was shown this holy city, this Jerusalem descending out of heaven. And then verse 11 describes it as having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 23 goes on to say, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of the Lord sustains all things and overcomes all things. And so we pray thankfully because... The Lord is glorious, thanking him that the Lord, that in this spiritual battle, his glory prevails over Satan's. Second, remember that the Lord is good, and in this goodness, we see that the Lord is gracious. The psalmist declares that the Lord is good and upright. Mark ten eighteen says, no one is good but one, that is God. In light of the malicious nature of Satan, the goodness of God should be refreshing, bringing up the downtrodden and restoring courage to the discouraged and hydrating the dehydrated. The spiritual battle can deplete the soul, but the Lord is good, and he doesn't let the soul waste away. In fact, even in the worst of circumstances, he transforms those from something hopeless to something hopeful. The goodness of God warrants a prayer of thankfulness, because it is an acknowledgement of that goodness. We give thanks to God because God purposes for good what others purpose for harm. And finally, we pray thankfully because God is giving. The Lord gives all things necessary for living. There's no lack because the Lord has made provision that he is caring for all our needs by giving himself to fulfill those needs. The Lord's giving nature is most poignantly displayed in the gracious nature of giving his son. The service and sacrifice of Jesus Christ by itself is sufficient motivation for a thankful prayer. 
Had it not been for that one act, that single act, humans would have no hope in this spiritual battle. But because God is giving, we have the expectation of overcoming this spiritual warfare rather than being overcome by spiritual warfare. And so because God is giving, we have once again reason to pray. Thankfully, the call to pray, thankfully, assumes that we have reasons to pray, thankfully. And sure enough, we do. That reason is found in the nature of God. A thankful disposition causes our hearts to be inclined towards God. There's an example of one who was given a dish of sand. And within that dish, there were particles of iron. And that example says that we, we could look for those particles of iron and sand with our clumsy hands and fingers, and we'd be unable to detect them. But if we take a magnet and sweep through it, It would draw up even the most invisible of those particles. The unthankful heart is much like our finger. It discovers no mercies. But if you let the thankful heart sweep through that, it acts like a magnet finding the iron. And the thankful heart will see the blessings of the Lord. The more thankful we are in prayer, the more our heart is inclined towards the Lord. And the more our heart is inclined towards the Lord, the more thankful we are in prayer. It just goes in a circle. And so the nature of God determines the nature of our prayer. The nature of the spiritual battle determines that we pray devotedly or steadfastly. The nature of Satan determines that we pray um, watchfully. And the nature of God determines that the believer pray, thankfully. We've always looked at the splitting of the temple veil during the crucifixion as a moment of our liberation from the mediated presence of God. And so now we say, henceforth, that we are free to approach him directly. But in 1976, Virginia Stem Owens writes, Saying that we're free to approach him directly is almost like telling someone he is free to stick his head in the lion's jaws. For once you start praying, there is no guarantee that you won't find yourself before Pharaoh, shipwrecked on a desert island or in a lion's den. She goes on, awful things happen to people who pray. Their plans are frequently disrupted. They end up in strange places. Abraham went out not knowing where he was to go. After Mary's magnificent prayer at the Annunciation, she finds herself the pariah of Nazareth society. How tempting it is to up the stakes and make prayer then about another consumer product. But prayer is not a consumer product. Prayer is not given to get what we want. It's not given to make Christianity appealing. Prayer is a means to call upon a holy God to act in an unholy world. And so it comes backed by his substantive character. And so when he responds to prayer, we know that he does so with it as an expression of who he is with all of his character. It also comes backed by his sovereign will so that he will respond as he chooses and he sees as perfectly fit 
to accomplish his will in our lives. And it comes backed by the supreme power of the Lord. So that when he does accomplish his will, he will accomplish it fully and completely. If we believe the Lord answers prayer, then let us pray like we believe the Lord answers prayer. Let's pray. Our Father God, we're so grateful that here we are discussing what it means to pray to you, Lord, and and we can end and close in prayer, trusting that indeed you are hearing our prayer. And Father, we are indeed engaged in this spiritual battle. We all know it. We all see its effects in our lives and outside of our lives, Lord, and yet we know that we can pray to you in the midst of that, that that becomes an expression of our reliance upon you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us a people of prayer. Father, help us to lean on you and call forth your help in all these struggles. Let us not be a self-reliant people, but, Lord, let us be a people reliant upon you, and may we seek you in this will and this work that you have in this world, Lord. And so we commit all these things to you in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.